Yeah, Tom, you know what's going on. He is risen. Right on. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Easter Sunday, a Sunday that changed the world. One of the things I find really refreshing about the gospel accounts is that in the writings, um, there's no sense in which they want to gloss over what they're writing about. In other words, there aren't shortcomings or inadequacies or weaknesses in the text that they feel that they need to cover up. In fact, it seems that sometimes the writers are actually leading with these challenges. In other words, what I mean is that the writers of Scripture were very aware that what they were writing about was absolutely, absolutely incredible, but at the same time, so rooted in history and true that they were unashamedly, utterly, and completely transparent, even down to details that might be used to discredit some of their claims. And when you get to the resurrection, you see some of that. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 27 and 28, the Jewish leaders convinced Pilate, the head of the Romans uh, in that area, to post Roman centurions at the tomb because they wisely understood that Jesus claimed to come back from the grave three days later. But they said, just in case this imposter, he says he's going to come back from the grave and his disciples may come by and steal the body and proclaim a resurrection host. Uh, a hoax. And so they said, would you post Roman centurions to prevent that from happening? And so here's the thing. Even if, uh, if according to the religious leaders, the disciples could steal the body of Jesus, and how would regular fishermen overcome battle-hardened Roman centurions? I don't know. But even if that could be possible, where would that story lead? What happens, though, in the narrative is the Roman centurions witness the resurrection of Christ. And they come back to the religious leaders and tell them what happens. And what the religious leaders do is they pay them hush money to keep it quiet about what's going on and say that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Had that been the case, why then would Matthew write about the very Roman guards who were at the tomb so that people could verify the account with those soldiers one way or the other? Doesn't quite make sense. Another example that may not seem odd to our modern ears, but was certainly shocking in the first century, Luke chapter 24, John chapter 20. It was women who went to the tomb and discovered the empty tomb and proclaimed the resurrection. Now, why is that significant? Because in the first century, women were not considered credible witnesses. So if you're going to try a new movement or spread a new story, you wouldn't have your main protagonist to be women that nobody would listen to in the first place. Secondly, consistently through all the Gospels, the men, the disciples, were portrayed as cowards while the women were the heroines. If you're going to start a new faith and you wanted people to give you the authority to lead that faith, if you're one of the 12 disciples, you don't have the men always being cowards and the women always being kind of brave. That narrative would work today in 21st century America, but it wouldn't fly in first century Palestine. Finally, Paul says it himself, you get rid of the resurrection and the whole thing of Christianity falls apart. As a matter of fact, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 and 17, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But friends, as history unfolded, the resurrection couldn't be disproved as a historical event. Certainly not by the Romans, who were responsible for the execution of Jesus and were empowered during the time of the resurrection. 
the Jews, the Jewish establishment, who had the most to lose and therefore had every vested interest in disproving this story. They couldn't disprove it. Nobody could prove otherwise that Jesus did not rise from the grave. Nobody could disprove that. All they needed to do was produce a body. They couldn't produce a body. None of the witnesses who saw Jesus after his resurrection would recant their story, and the story was the same from everyone, everywhere. So as Western culture developed, and since they couldn't disprove the event, they did something different. They domesticated it. They domesticated Easter. Rather than being about historic events with real individuals and a physical resurrection, Easter has been spiritualized. It's been sentimentalized, turned into a kind of strange, nonsensical holiday with a rabbit and eggs. And to this day, Christian or not, no one can tell me why rabbits and eggs go together, but that's what Easter has become about, right? It's kind of a, a, a um, chicken soup for the soul kind of hallmark spirituality. Today, there's more sentiment about Easter in the West than there is supernatural, that's for sure. But it was successful. As a result, in Western society, basically everyone, Christian or not, religious or irreligious, church-going or not, we're all kind of comfortable with Easter. Easter now is a symbol of better things, a symbol of new hope, of summer after winter, hope after tragedy, pastel colors and sundresses, very domesticated. What a contrast to the original Easter weekend. Let me read to you just three brief accounts from three of the four gospel narratives. Matthew's gospel describes that first weekend this way. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Mark's gospel. They were alarmed and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Luke's gospel. They were troubled. They were startled. They were frightened. You get the point. Very different than the way the West thinks about Easter today. But if we're willing to read the Bible's account of the resurrection, it's actually perfect reading for a culture like our own that has really domesticated this occasion. Instead of being comfortable with Easter, when you read it, you realize there's only two responses, either A, joy, or terror, because of what this means. See, here's the thing. If, if you spiritualize Easter, if you sentimentalize it, yeah, you will get comfortable with it, and you might get some comfort from it, but you're not going to get the truth. And that's so much of what's happened in our society. Because we've sentimentalized it, we've spiritualized it, it's a comfortable thing, but it's not the truth of what Easter is all about. If you spiritualize it, if it's just a sentimental holiday, it is just a holiday that by and large is pretty meaningless. But if Jesus is alive, has flesh and bones, the gospel accounts are true. It's not some myth or some story, but the resurrection is a historical reality as it was. Jesus raised from the dead. That will change you in three ways. It'll change the way you think. It will change the way you live. And it'll change the way you feel. So let's look at the first uh, thing that it's going to change. It's going to change the way you think. We're going to deal with this one first because it is wonderful, but it's probably the most terrifying of the three points I make. And by the way, it's the, it's the one of the three points that people most want to domesticate because everything flows from this reality. And if you have a Bible, you can, you can turn open to Acts chapter 2. 
you're a Christian, you should be familiar with Acts chapter 2. This is what we call the day of Pentecost, when the church, some people say, when the when church was born. What we have here is Peter preaching to these crowds in Jerusalem as they're all standing amazed at what God is doing. We're going to pick it up in verse 31, midstream through Peter's sermon. Acts chapter 2, 31. This is what Peter's preaching. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Skipping down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, so Peter is boldly preaching the gospel. And he says, verse 32, we're all witnesses of this. Now, you might be thinking that Peter's referring to him and the 12 disciples. In fact, it includes him, but Peter's referring to all the witnesses, hundreds of people who have seen Jesus. It's been 40 days since Jesus' crucifixion, and in that time, Jesus has made numerous appearances to numerous individuals, teaching them through the scriptures how everything pointed to him. As a matter of fact, so, so what Peter's saying, we are all witnesses of that. He's talking about these hundreds of people who've seen this reality. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul actually says 500 people at one time saw the risen Christ. 20 years after the fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that these 500, most of them are still alive to this day. Why is Paul saying that? Because he's saying, if you want to verify the account... We got living witnesses that saw the risen Christ. You can go talk to any one of them. In fact, can I say that what Peter is doing here in Acts chapter 2 is a strong evidence of the historical reliability of Jesus' physical resurrection. I say, what, what does a man preaching have to do with being evidence of Jesus coming back from the grave? How do those two connect? Well, think about this. Peter here in Jerusalem is boldly proclaiming the very same message in the very same city in front of some of the very same men who weeks earlier had Jesus crucified for the same exact thing. And the startling thing is when you read the gospel accounts, every single one of them at the crucifixion of Jesus, all the disciples, including Peter here, scattered. They ran in fear of their lives. There were nowhere to be found. And again, it was just the women there. But all the disciples bolted. And then seemingly, suddenly, apparently, overnight, here all they come, brazenly preaching the gospel, telling the whole city of Jerusalem, anyone who would listen, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that he rose back from the grave. The religious leader says, you have filled the city with this nonsense. Overnight, they go from lions to become lambs. And if you know anything about the historical record, every one of the disciples, with the exception of John, were executed for their faith in Christ. And not one of them recanted their story, renounced or revised the claims they made about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, the transformation of the disciples and the birth of the Christian church is a, a, socio, a social phenomena that's inexplicable. 
What can account for this? When their leader was slaughtered for the whole city to see and the very followers bolted and gave up hope and then almost overnight, a few weeks later, they come out guns blazing that he rose from the grave. Now, there are other lines of evidence we could pursue. There's, a, there's about 14 of them, but uh, that'll make for a very long sermon. Let me just give three quotes by individuals, none of whom are Christians, regarding the resurrection. The first is from Mr. Jeffrey Lauder. He's the founder, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Internet Infidels. So he says, regarding the resurrection, that there are strong historical arguments that can be made for the resurrection. Now, to be clear and transparent, Mr. Lauder doesn't believe in the resurrection. But he says that there's, the resurrection can be the only plausible explanation for the birth of Christianity at this time. Now, he says, to be clear, I don't believe the message, but it's very obvious that thousands upon thousands of Jews and Gentiles in the first century of Palestine, they believe this message. So I appreciate his honesty about that. But maybe more telling is the world-renowned atheist Anthony Flew. Now, if you went to college, maybe in the 90s and early 2000s, you studied philosophy, surely you would have read Flew. If you know Bertrand Russell, Bertrand Russell and Anthony Flew were peas in a pods, colleagues and friends. And then Flew rocked the academic community back in 2007. I remember this. For about three years, people couldn't stop talking about the betrayal of Flew because he converted from atheism to theism. And this is what he wrote in his book, there is a God, kind of riffing off of his friend Bertrand Russell's book, There Is No God. He writes this, the evidence for the resurrection, now to be clear, I want to be very transparent, I don't know if Flew ever became a, a committed Christian. He simply abandoned atheism for a theistic worldview. That, does, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. It's just, I want to be clear on that for those of you who are really thinking through this carefully. He just abandoned atheism, he became a theist, and this is what he says. The evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in both quantity and quality. Finally, a Jewish historian, a Jewish theologian, Pinkus Lapid, he says this, I accept the resurrection of Easter Sunday not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as an actual historical event. So here we have three individuals, none of whom claim any real affinity for Christianity, saying the only thing that can possibly explain the birth of Christianity and the church has got to be the resurrection, because nothing else matches up. That doesn't mean you have to believe it, they're saying. They're just saying, if you're going to be honest with what's happening in history, and to explain this, it can only be something so world-shattering that it transformed people and sent them to their death willingly and joyfully for what they discovered. And they said it must be the resurrection. And so Peter, in, back in our text in Acts chapter 2, he draws the connections, he connects the dots in verse 36. He says the resurrection evidences that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Let me take you to a second passage. Acts chapter 17. This is a, I love this text of scripture. Here we have Paul the apostle who is walking into Athens, and he goes to a place called Mars Hill, the Areopagus, right? And, and there on Mars Hill, there's a bunch of these Stoic philosophers, Epicureans, and all they do all day is talk theology, philosophy, metaphysics, and the meaning of life. And Athens at that time, there's temples, there's statues, there's idols, there's altars everywhere. Even one, to cover their bases, it says, to the unknown God. 
And so just in case they're not worshiping the right God, they even have an altar dedicated to the one they don't know about. Paul, being the wise uh, evangelist that he is, capitalizes on this. He says, you uh, Athenians, I will proclaim to you the God that you do not know. And so Paul goes on this great sermon talking about how God does not live in temples made by hands. God does not need anything from humans as the other gods do. As a matter of fact, this God gives everyone breath and life. And while Paul's preaching, man, these Athenian philosophers, they're just eating this up. Now, if you know anything about history, you might ask, well, why are they so encouraging of Paul when Christianity was the faith that basically decimated Roman and Greek pagan mythology? Why would they be happy to hear from him? Think about it at that time. Well, we're not much different because everyone is seeking for God, right? Everyone's looking for that journey. Everyone's looking to connect with the transcendent, looking for a little bit of insight here, a little bit of light there, a little bit of truth there that we can kind of put together the way we want to connect with what is supernatural. And they were no different. They loved it. Bring it on, Paul. Another deity to give us a little bit of truth and light? Amen to that, right? Until we get to verse 30, when Paul talks about the resurrection. And Paul says, you know, those times of ignorance God overlooked. God overlooked man stumbling around in the dark, and now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is verse 30 here of Acts 17. He says this, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, and of this he has given us assurance to all. By raising him from the dead. Man, that killed the conversation real quick. They were done. Why? Because what Paul was saying is, hey, the search is over. That time of looking and that time of seeking, the answer is here. No more seeking. It's now time for decision. Fish or cut bait. Because now's the time. God made it clear and he raised him from the dead to prove that. And they didn't like that. See, the great thing about vague spirituality that, that, that we have in our society as well is the great thing about it is you can feel like you're connecting with the transcendent, that you're spiritual and that you're doing good, you're a truth seeker without having to change the way you live at all. I think that's part of the appeal. I can feel good that I'm connecting with something out there, but at the end of the day, it doesn't actually have to change my life at all. I get to still control how I live. But these philosophers knew if what Paul was saying was true about the resurrection, and if Jesus is Lord, then he sets the agenda, not them. And that's why they shut the conversation down, because a claim to resurrection was an ultimate claim. The power over death and the grave put Jesus on a whole other reality that they couldn't deal with. Jesus, according to Paul and the resurrection, broke death. And overturned everything that goes with it. Corruption, decay, waste. He operates in a whole new reality. He is the life giver. He is life. No other religion, no other myth, no other resurrection story in paganism or even those in the Bible come close. And think about it. Every resurrection story we know of, and, and if you were at Palm Sunday, you might have thought about Lazarus. It's not really a resurrection, was it? It's more like a resuscitation. Why? Because Lazarus then died. Every resurrection narrative there is, it's more a resuscitation because they end up succumbing to death with the exception of one, Jesus. He doesn't succumb to death again. He overcomes it. 
This is why, if you remember our study in Revelation, I love that, that scene where John sees the risen Christ and the risen Christ says to him in Revelation 1.8, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So what did this mean for these Athenian philosophers, for Paul to be talking about the resurrection? What does this mean for you and I? All religions, all moral teachers, all, all they did was point to truth. They pointed to life. But Jesus says, I'm truth. I'm life. He didn't point to it. He is it. And the evidence was that he broke death in two. And just look at the empty tomb. The fact that the stone was rolled away from the tomb. That wasn't so that Jesus could get out. Is that, is that what you thought? You, some of you did, didn't you? You thought that's what happened. No. He rolled the stone aside so you could look in. And you could see it's empty. He's not in there. He did it. He conquered the grave. The thing that we fear the most the thing that faces all of humanity that we cannot conceive how to overcome has been undead, undone in Jesus Christ. The resurrection means it's time for decision. Fish or cut bait, as they say. Sorry, I, was on, I took a trip to the south last week, so I've got those metaphors in my head. It's time to think of Jesus not as a good moral teacher, as an optional moral or religious philosopher but as the living Lord who has the keys of death and life. We have to change the way we think about him. Peter and Paul says that means repentance. That word, what that means is to turn your, change your mind, turn your direction. Literally means to do an about face. Going away from God, now going back to him. Ignoring God to acknowledging him. If he is alive, he is Lord. And we're not. And he sets the agenda. Secondly, if Jesus is alive, it'll change the way you live. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think some people think that if heaven, if it exists, if it's real, to get there, we have to give up all the things we like about this life so we can spend eternity floating around on some cloud, wearing a, a yoga, a toga, playing a harp, and being bored, right? Or... They have no concept of what heaven actually is, so there's actually no appeal to it other than heaven sounds like a better option than eternal punishment, and so they opt for that. But neither one of those seem like good options, so they're stuck facing two bad choices. But if Jesus is alive, if the resurrection accounts from the Bible are true, he's got flesh and bones like you and I right here, right now, this changes the way you live. For example, let me read a couple of verses and unpack them. Luke 24, 39, listen to what it says. Jesus says, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have, right? And then he asks them for a piece of fish, and then he starts eating broiled fish. John chapter 20, verse 27, Jesus is talking to Thomas, and he says, look at my hands. Put out your hand. Place it here in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then in 1 John 1.11, John says, look, we've seen with our own eyes, we've heard with our own ears, we've touched him with our own hands. Why does the Bible go to such great lengths to talk about the physical, the material, the real flesh and bones of Jesus' resurrection? It's a question to be asked. It goes to a great length about it. 
I think it does so because it's trying to teach us that we have a whole new way of relating to the world we live in. What I mean by that is that the, the Christian future, life after death, is a physical future. You're not going to be floating around on some clouds with your feet kind of floating above the earth like you're some kind of ghost. No! When you look at the accounts of the resurrection and the, physical, the physicality of it, the resurrection is telling us you will feel the grass between your toes. That there's a real flesh and bones to it. Our hands will embrace other hands. Our face will feel the warmth of the sun. We'll feel the spray of the ocean. We'll taste the salt in our mouth. A physical resurrection means you'll eat, you'll drink, you'll dance, you'll love, you'll laugh, you'll do all these things. Why am I making a big deal of that? Here's why. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us you will not miss out on anything at all. If you think somehow life has passed you by, maybe life has shortchanged you, maybe life has robbed you, or maybe that you blew it, you've made too many mistakes, you've just screwed up too much, or life plain old was not what you had hoped it would be, and the only thing you have to look forward to is just more of less, that you never had the family that you had always hoped you'd have, that you never knew deep, true friendships like you've always wanted, You've never achieved what you'd hoped for, whether your life mattered. Or you've just watched other people live life, and you've been benched. You got, or you got benched, maybe through a disease or someone sinning against you, doing something cruel in your life. If you just feel like you missed out, the physical resurrection of Jesus tells us, friends, there is a whole new life just around the corner with all the good of this world and none of the sin of this world. Genesis chapter 1, the very first, literally the very first verse of the Bible, tells us that God created us for a physical, material world that was beautiful and good. It starts literally like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Almost the last chapter of the Bible tells us the same thing. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. We weren't created to float around in clouds like Casper the Friendly Ghost. God made a material world of pleasures and goodness for his creation to enjoy, and that's what the resurrection reminds us of. Now, the question is, how does this matter for the way we live? I think there are many people who live in South Orange County who are frantically trying to get everything they can from life because they feel this is the only shot they got. And so they live life, and they're scrambling to get the most out of every weekend, out of every vacation, out of every paycheck, out of every experience, out of every relationship. They want it all, they need it all, and it has to happen now because this is the only life you've got. And if you listen to a lot of the commercials, they just reinforce that idea. So if they think of heaven at all, they either think it's boring or they don't know what to make of it or they don't believe in it. So the only thing that matters is right now, live in the moment, get everything you can because when this is done, you're done. And they're living a frantic, frenetic pace of life to get it all. And they will burn relationships. They will live radical lives that are dangerous for their own selves because they're trying to get all the life they can right now because they don't have any hope for anything else. But if there's a physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, that teaches us two radically important things that counters that narrative. Number one, we have an eternal physical future. 
Number two, it's better than anything we could possibly compare it to now. Listen to what C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor, says in his book, uh, The Weight of Glory. Um, He's kind of a a thick writer, so I'm going to read it a little bit slow so you can process what he says, but it's rich. He writes, The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds are what we now call physical pleasures. That's a thick sentence, right? Basically saying, when God created everything, Genesis 1-1, and it all exploded into existence, all the things we enjoy, it's the halo effect of all that, that powerful, the energies that God puts in the matter, he says. The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds are what we now call physical pleasures, and even thus filtered, they are too much for our present management. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead, that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. So what Lewis is saying is, every great experience you've had now, the best food you've tasted, the music you've heard, the friendships you've shared, the travels you experienced, the joys, the laughs, all the things we love about this life, he says, and that's, that's just a trickle. That's like the diluted downstream delight of what awaits us at the eternal source, which is God's eternal domain. It's what's promised to everyone in Jesus Christ. Friends, you know what that means? That means as, as everyone around us is living this frantic pace to get everything out of life, man, you can just relax. You can take it easy. More importantly, more than just relax, you can live sacrificially right now. You you can defer to others. You can even let people impose on you. You can give of yourself rather than live for yourself because you're going to get it all anyway. It's all coming to you in Christ. Friends, do you see why a physical resurrection is so important? Do you see why the truth of Easter is so much more meaningful than any nostalgia or sentimentality of Easter? Listen to what um, N.T. Wright, a a brilliant British theologian, he says with this. If Easter is just sentimentality, then it's about me and feeling good. But if Easter is real, then it's good news for everyone. News that warms our hearts exactly because it's not just about warming hearts. Easter is proof that God will not tolerate the the decay and wickedness of this world. Take away Easter, and Karl Marx is right. Christianity ignores the material problems of the world. Take away Easter, and Freud is right. Christianity is just wish fulfillment. Take away Easter, and Nietzsche was right. And Christianity is just for wimps. If Jesus is alive, number one, we need to repent because he's Lord of all. We need to recognize that. But we can also relax. We can also relax because he's got an eternal, physical future waiting for you and I far greater than anything we could imagine. And we can give our lives now to others around us than living for ourselves if Jesus is alive. 
So Jesus will change the way you think. He'll change the way you live. And finally, Jesus can change the way you feel. Friends, if Jesus is alive, the reason he can change the way you feel is because you can actually have him. If he's alive, by faith, you can have Jesus. Let me explain a little bit of this from a, in her book, The Secular Creed, author Rebecca McLaughlin talks about a small Broadway musical you might have heard of. It's called Hamilton. It's been a little bit, one or two of you heard of it. In Act 1, there, Eliza meets Alexander Hamilton when, when he walks into the room, and if you know the play, her heart goes boom, right? She looks into his eyes. She says, the sky's the limit. She's just drowning in them. It's, just, it's Hollywood romance and love at its best. Hamilton feels the same way, and he says, if fighting a war for us to meet, if it takes fighting a war for us to meet, it will have been worth it. But as the story unfolds, we see that this romance flounders. Hamilton swears to God he will never leave Eliza, but he does. He has an affair that devastates her. But even before the affair, Hamilton has left Eliza for the mistress of success and political fame. Eliza in this musical is left longing for Hamilton's affection and attention, but she never gets it. What felt like a step into a dazzling new romance, a new world, became a stumble into heartache. By the end of the musical, Hamilton is the one left longing, longing for Eliza's forgiveness, forgiveness for his terrible affair, forgiveness for the death of their son, forgiveness for neglecting her and pursuing the mistress of work. He's just longing for that forgiveness. And so as you look at the relationship, both Eliza and Alexander are longing for things they will never get. And so McLaughlin asks, well, what are we to make of this romance in this musical? Are we wrong to believe in the reality and the ecstasy of love, she asks. So much of our lives are stories of unrequited love. So much of our lives, she says, begin with promise and hope, but they just end with longing and heartache. Will love always be an ever-receding horizon that we can, we can grasp at but never experience for ourselves? She says, no. If we take the Bible seriously... We will see that when romantic love consumes our hearts, when it makes us feel helpless, when it fills us with such joy that we can't think about anything else, and when it crushes us so cruelly, we're laying in a pool of our own tears. It's actually pointing us to something else. It's giving us a picture of the one love that can and will last forever, the one romance that truly smashes through the grave. The love that if we miss it now, it will devastate us for eternity. She says the resurrection of Jesus proves that love can be had by all. If death itself cannot stop him, nothing can stop him. Jesus is the glory that Alexander sought. Jesus is the love that Eliza pursued. And Jesus is the longing of every human heart. And his resurrection from the grave is the evidence that he's real and everyone can have him by faith. And here's the proof that he is alive. It may sound strange, but it'll make sense. Let me unpack it. Here's the proof. We have no idea where the tomb of Jesus is. We don't. Now, before you people who've been to Israel tell me, no, we know where it was. I paid a guy $25 and he took me for a tour. You got scammed. Okay. <laughs> no one knows where the tomb of Jesus actually is. Get your money back. By the second generation the Christian church lost the tomb. They had no idea where it was. 
Now, why is that significant? You might say, yeah, incompetent church leadership never changes. No, but why is it significant that the church lost the tomb? Here's why. Because if Jesus had died and not returned from the grave, we would have made his tomb a shrine of memorial to him. We knew where the tomb was. Every gospel shows that the disciples or Mary or others ran to the tomb. We knew where the tomb was. The reason we didn't make it a shrine of memorial to him is the same reason we don't make a shrine to anyone who's alive. We have them. We don't need a shrine to remember them. We have the person. And that's how we know Jesus came back. Because we have no idea where the tomb is. We didn't need a memorial site. We had fellowship with him. Friends, in the same way, parents can get this. You know, you walk in your kid's room, and if it's like me, you're like, man, there's like shoes and clothes, a bed's not made, there's workout gear here, there's makeup or whatever, and you get annoyed, right? But what happens when your children grow up and go off to college, or they get married and they move out, or the tragedy, they, they die? How do you then feel about their room? When you walk in and you see those shoes and the clothes and the bed, you don't want to touch anything because that's your connection to them. That's the thing that binds you to them. That's where they were, and you got to remember them and hold on. And if you change anything, you might lose them. It becomes a shrine, right? But while you have your kids, that's no shrine. That's like a pigsty because you have them. It works the same way. We know Jesus rose again because we didn't make a shrine of where he died. We can have him because he's real. And that changes the way we feel about him because the love that Eliza longed for is Christ. The glory that Alexander and the forgiveness he sought for is Christ. And all those things that elude us in life are ours in Christ. And Jesus' real physical resurrection tells us it's not just a hope, it's history. Real, actual history. And that's why Paul said, if you can disprove that, then it's all a house of cards. But it was never disproven. And lives, countless lives, went to the grave in the early church, proclaiming that they weren't afraid of the grave because they knew the one who brings them out. Well, friends, as we conclude, the important thing to realize, it has to go in that order. You have to change your thinking about him, that he is Lord, not you. That he sets the agenda, you don't. He sets the terms of coming to God, not you or your spirituality. But he's Lord of life, and we repent. But when you do that, you find the promises of an eternal life. It changes the way you live, because you don't have to be frantic about this world. You can be relaxed. You don't have to get it all now, because you'll get it all then and then some. And when you realize that Jesus Christ himself is the fountainhead of glory, of forgiveness, of love, you rejoice, man. You won't need to seek those from people around you that will let you down, or your job, or your accomplishments, or anything else, because you have it all in Christ, and that changes the way you feel on the inside out. Friends, that's why Easter the physical, the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ matters. Why a sentimental, nostalgic view of it will never do. That's how Easter changes the way we think, live, and feel. Let's pray.
ambassadors you've sent to a lost, decaying world, that there is a new world just around the corner. Help us to be so consumed by that, it transforms us, our thinking, our living, our feeling, because this world needs it, and we're reminded of that this morning as we are every Sunday morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.